Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. I haven't been outside again since I got here real early. Is it, is it nice out or is it sweaty? Mixed reviews, mixed reviews, we got mixed reviews. That's okay. Uh, we're glad to be together in this uh, air-conditioned environment. I'll just say it that way. Uh, and I'm excited because today we're starting a whole new chapter at Grace Church. Chapter 7. <laughs> Yay! Uh, okay, so we've been spending a lot of time going through the Gospel of John together in this series we're calling Foundations because... These things that John is helping us to understand and to know are not just so that we can understand facts and figures and things about Jesus in the, you know, for funsies. It's so that we know who Jesus is and, and come to, to trust and believe in him uh, for who he truly is, not who we say he is or who we'd like him to be, but who he truly is. And so as we get together and we, we work through this together, uh, it, it's not a result of of us uh, coming to these conclusions, but instead it's a result of us inviting the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts and to change us from the inside out so that we leave uh, completely different than when we came in here. Uh, and God is the only one that has the power to deliver that kind of thing. But oftentimes we get confused about that. We, we think, well, there's got to be other ways that we can be, quote unquote, successful, especially when it comes to our lives and living in the world that we live in. And so as we start chapter seven, I want you to think about two words in particular, two areas I would say we all struggle with. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is. But those those two things are approval and appearance, approval and appearance. And all of us struggle with dealing with these types of things for one reason or another, maybe in different ways, maybe in different contexts, but we all struggle with this because there is just something that seems to be hardwired in us that is seeking the approval of other people. And then in the way that we do that or get that, it is a constant changing of our outward expression of who we think we are that will either lead us to being approved and accepted more or approved less, maybe even rejected or shunned. And so we, we get on this hamster wheel. Now, I cannot think of a better example of exactly that than social media, right? Social media by design taps in to all of these things that we know at least at some level to be true about ourselves, which is that we are desperately seeking the, the world's approval. We, we are seeking influence, power. We, we, we find it in the form of, of thumbs up or upvotes or followers or hearts or likes or whatever you want to call it. You'll, you'll notice that, that we've got still just the thumbs up button on, well, you younger people probably don't even use Facebook anymore, but they still have this thumbs up uh, thing for like, but then now you've got all these other little icons that come in there. Well, notice there's no thumbs down. There's an angry face, right? But that angry face is, is tucked in all those other kinds of uh, emojis and things like that. And that's by design too, because the whole point is if, if we can get you hooked on this dopamine hit that, that goes into your brain every time you check your post and see, oh, so many people liked it or so many people commented on it, so many people shared it. Matter of fact, there was a study not that long ago that, that said that 48% of the heaviest fake book, face, 
Fake book. Ooh. Chuck uh, <laughs> that one away. Uh, the heaviest fake book. <laughs> one more time. Can you do this without saying it? I don't know. The heaviest Facebook users start their day checking the status of whatever it is they posted on Facebook to see what kind of traction it's getting. Now, what happens after that? Well, when we start to get more momentum, then we do more of those things. When we don't get anybody paying attention or doing what we want, well, then we start to do other things because this is all wrapped up in our desire to gain approval from other people. And there's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with giving one another compliments and encouraging one another. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when that becomes a focus, then we are on the hamster wheel. And round and round it goes because we keep changing our appearance to try to gain more approval. And when we start losing approval, then we change our appearance, right? It goes back and forth and round and round. And it is exhausting. And so when we've now arrived at chapter seven, guess what? Good news, even though there was no Facebook at the time, Jesus was still addressing these same things because these are core human issues. Now, you might be one of these people, I know a few of you are, but uh, you might be one of these people that say things like, well, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. But of course you realize, <clears throat> just by saying that, you prove exactly the opposite, <laughs> right? Because if you truly don't care about what I think, then why would you need to tell me, right? It's like, the old, it's the same trick as, uh, you know, I've been thinking, and it turns out I'm the most humble person I've ever known. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. We all are dealing with this at some level. And so keep that in mind as we go through this together. Now. As we start chapter seven, it's another long chapter. So we're going to be here for, for a few weeks. And uh, I want you to, to kind of get a lay of the land here. Uh, it starts with before something called the feast or the festival of tabernacles. Okay. Then in the middle of it, it shifts to during the feast of tabernacles. And then at the end, what do you think happens? After the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the, the outline of chapter 7. All these things and all these discussions and all these interactions that Jesus is having with, with different groups of people. And so in this particular, we're going to start before the festival and then we're going to work our way into the festival and then we'll keep going on in the weeks ahead. But before we, we dive in and start getting into the specifics, uh, I would just like to, to read our passage today. It's chapter 7, verses 1 to 24, verses 1 to 24. I'm going to read that first, and then we're going to pray together, uh, and then we'll get going. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, Show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. 
After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though it actually did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We know, Lord, that it is not even by our own choosing, but you choosing us and drawing us into this place at this particular time, whether we're in person or online. And Lord, we just ask that right now you have your way in our hearts, that you, that you bring new life to us in only the way that you can, by the power of your word, which does what it says. And so, Lord, that's what I pray in this moment, that it not be my words that we hear, but instead it be a word from you that does what it says and raises the dead and transforms us into following after you more closely and more deeply than we ever have before. Lord, help us to know that there is no doubt you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... I don't know if you caught this, but there are two groups of people here. It's kind of divided into two sections for our, our little passage today. We got the first 13 verses, and then we've got kind of the last chunk. And there are two different groups of people that are working on two different issues. Jesus' interaction with them is, is calling that out in both cases. The first group is Jesus' brothers. And his brothers are encouraging Jesus to seek the world's approval, right? They... They're saying, hey, go to Jerusalem. You're, you think you're a big deal. Go to Jerusalem and prove it. Uh, that's where all the people are. Go there and see what happens. So they are seeking approval on behalf of Jesus in this worldly system of understanding. But then, interestingly enough, the second section that we're going to look at is the religious leaders who are focused on keeping up appearances. So again, there's this relationship between appearance and approval and approval and appearance. We'll see this ping pong kind of back and forth. But these two different distinct groups of people help us see that the root of both of these problems, both of these issues, both of these struggles is actually unbelief. It's unbelief. It's specifically, it's unbelief in Jesus. 
And so John, remember, he tells us at the end of his gospel, his whole point for writing this in the first place. And it's so that we may believe and know and trust who Jesus is, not just know about Jesus, but to know Jesus. And so this is yet again, one of those ways he's doing it. Now he skips some time. We'll, we'll give a little contextual orientation here in a minute. So we know kind of when this is happening in relation to where we ended last week, but just know that, that John only includes the things in his gospel that he really thinks drive us into this relationship with Jesus. And so when you, let's just start at uh, verse two and read a couple of these verses here. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one wants to become a, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. The, the timing in, in verse one, it talks about he stayed in Galilee. He was avoiding Judea. He knew that the Jewish people, the leaders were after him. They were upset with him. And so how this, this all fits chronologically is that the last time that Jesus was in Jerusalem was about a year before now. Okay, and when he was in Jerusalem before, that's what we talked about in chapter five. And in chapter five, there was this whole teaching about how Jesus had gone to the pool of Bethesda and there was a paralyzed man there who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And do, remember what Jesus said? He, he said, you want to get healed? Yeah. Then take up your mat and walk. Okay, now that should be good news, right? This man is been delivered. He's been healed. But that's not the way the religious leaders were seeing this because, well, why did Jesus choose to heal this guy on the Sabbath? If he'd been paralyzed for 38 years, couldn't he have waited one more day to do this? Why was he doing this on the Sabbath? But, but even beyond that, even worse, more offensive to them was the fact that he told the man, take up your mat and walk, which is directly against what their traditions, what their rules were. And so they then interpret Jesus as, as very, very anti-spiritual system. They have a spiritual system that they understand. They have rules and regulations and all this kind of stuff. And, and Jesus, they recognize, is a threat to that. So we have these two groups of people. But there's also this timing component. You know, when he's talking with his brothers, we just read here that, that he says, uh, uh, I'm not going yet. We'll get to this in a, more in a minute. But this, this whole idea of, the, of his hour is not yet here means that he knows that eventually he's going to be in Jerusalem because he knows where this confrontation all finally culminates. And, and as we continue through now, we're getting, we, we finished chapter six. Now in, in seven, eight, and nine, we will start to see this controversy of Jesus. This, this, we talked about him being offensive before, but now it's becoming more and more dangerous. This reality that we heard in, in chapter five, verse 18, when they say, uh, or where the text tells us that the leader were now plotting for a way to kill him. We see that come back here. So know that it's related back to what he did in chapter five, that we now have this anticipation that he's coming back to Jerusalem. Now, why would he come back to Jerusalem? Well, one of the main reasons is this festival of tabernacles, that this is one of the three major Jewish feasts that also have this pilgrimage component where people, no matter where they were, they would try their best to come to Jerusalem three times a year for these different feasts. One is the Passover feast. 
then we have the Pentecost feast. The, the, that's usually called the feast or the festival of weeks. And then we've got in the fall then this festival of tabernacles. And this is to recognize and to celebrate and to remember God's miraculous deliverance and provision of rescuing uh, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and then taking them out into the wilderness where surely everyone thought they would probably die because they're out in the middle of nowhere, no food, no shelter, all that kind of stuff. And God provided during that time that they were out kind of wandering around in the wilderness. So this festival of tabernacles is in remembrance of that. There are parts of the, it's an eight day festival. There are parts of it that are specifically related to remembering things that God did in that time. For, for one, there's this lighting ceremony. There's this huge, the, everyone at night then can see the glow of the light that is coming from the temple. So they lit all of these lanterns and these torches and things like that. And, and the temple was almost glowing. And, and so that was to remind people of how God guided them in the wilderness. There was a pillar of smoke in the day and there was fire by night. Again, this idea of light is, is a big piece of John's gospel. So he's helping us connect these dots here. Then the other thing is that they had very little water in the wilderness and the people were thirsty and they, you know, we're talking about heat exhaustion, everything else. And God provided water for them from a rock. So there's part of the ceremony where they, where they pour water out of a gold pitcher on the rocks in the temple. And that is to remember this, this provision it's miraculous provision of God taking care of them. But then this, this whole idea of the tabernacles. Now, some of you are probably into, you know, things like camping. Me? Eh, not so much. My, my wife and I tried camping, at least in a tent. Well, we only tried it one time. And we both looked at each other and said, I'd be all right if we never did this again. That was the end of it. But in this particular case, the people go to Jerusalem and they build these temporary little small structures, these little shanties, or it's almost like a little kind of a, what we would think of as a tent, but a little, a little structure that they then would sleep in with their family. And now think about this. Now, part of the directions in building these little huts uh, is that they need to keep a, a distance uh, in, the, in the roof thatch enough that when you lay down and you look up, you can also see the stars. And now think about what, what kind of discussions would you have? Remember, we talked about a few weeks ago that, that the desire of God is that we pass this faith, this belief, this trust on to the next generation and the next generation. And so while they're laying there and they're looking up at the stars, they're remembering the promise that God made to Abraham. Your ancestors will be as numerous as the stars. You will be a great people and you will be a blessing to the entire world, to all the families on the earth. So they, they talk about that as they look and they experience this. And so that's why they built these little, these things, these little shanties, these little tent, these booths is actually, booths is what they really uh, call them. And so if we think about uh, how that might play out for them, there's this, this whole atmosphere of remembering the past and all of a sudden, we've got now this threat of Jesus coming in and interrupting or disrupting or changing or, or causing a distraction or redirecting effort and energy to maybe what he was up to and what he was saying and what he was doing uh, rather than what they were 
kind of in the process of remembering. So the, the, the Jewish leaders are on alert and they're expecting that he's going to show up. But the brothers think it's a great idea. They keep saying, uh, you should go, you should show these, these miracles. They, they clearly understand that he has the power to do these amazing signs, wonders, miracles. He's doing that. Uh, and so they, they recognize at least that much. And so if we just stopped at verse four, we could have just said, well, look how the, look at how his brothers encouraged him. Look at how they wanted what was best for him and how they, how they encouraged him to go on down there and, and, and fit or up there, up to Jerusalem and, 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 and show off his wonders. But then we have verse five and verse five tells us, oops, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now think about this. Jesus had brothers, his brothers, Joseph, Judas, not that one, uh, Simon and James. We see this in, in Matthew 13. And these brothers who, I mean, can you imagine growing up with Jesus? I mean, no wonder they have a problem believing. If you have any siblings, you know, I just want you to consider this. What would it take for you to believe that your brother is God in the flesh? Huh? What would that person have to do to prove to you that that claim was legitimate? I mean, I have two boys, right? And I see how this plays out. There is no way. Uh, matter of fact, this idea of, of sending Jesus to Jerusalem as a means of encouragement, well, that's kind of blown by the fact that they don't believe in him. But I saw this play out last night. We were all, fam my family was down in Stillwater and we were in line where, if you know anything about my, my family, I've got a 14 year old, his name is Conley. He, he is riding around on this little scooter all the time, does these amazing things on this scooter, like stuff that... Well, if I even tried it one time, that'd be the end of me. But he does amazing stuff. But as a result of that, it's high risk. So he's kind of broken, or we think maybe broke his ankle at least a couple times. Two times. And yet he's still kind of back at it. He's still, he really actually is very good at this whole scooter thing. And so last night we're standing there. He just got the boot off of his foot. We're standing down there at the ice cream line. And I hear my other son, Carter, saying, well, you know, if you're really all healed up, if you're really all good, if everything's really going well for you, why don't you run over there and just do a flip? And uh, no sooner did he say it, I look over there and there's Conley doing a flip. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So now, Carter, my other son, was not suggesting this because he thought Conley was going to be successful, right? He didn't believe that he could do it. He was hoping to see, you know, like a YouTube moment that he could capture. But Conley nailed it. Not once, but twice. And now we got to go back to physical therapy. There's no doubt about that. But here's the thing. That's the kind of, that's exactly the kind of path that we find ourselves on that leads us to getting right on the hamster wheel. We're looking for other people's approval. We're trying to get other people's approval so that we know how to feel about ourselves. But here's the truth. Seeking the world's approval will cost you God's. Seeking the world's approval will cost you God's. And does that really stop us? No, we continue to seek the world's approval in a whole variety of ways. Our, our, 
our culture is set up to exacerbate that desire and to, to try to get us to go deeper and deeper in to earning the world's approval. At least we, we try. And so, again, for these brothers, it's understandable that they don't believe in all of this stuff that Jesus is saying. They clearly understand and believe in some of it because they've seen him do the miracles. But what about when it comes to the claims that he's really making? Well, those, they, they can't get on board. And so when I asked earlier about what would it take for, for your sibling uh, to say to you that they are God in the flesh? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it would take for you to believe. It would take this person saying that they will be tortured, crucified, dead, buried. Three days later, they rise from the grave and appear to you. If that happens, you take that person real seriously, right? And so all of his brothers, well, they probably all believed, but for sure we know at least Judas and uh, James. James, matter of fact, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But it wasn't until after the resurrection. We read about that in, in Acts chapter 1. I think verse 14 talks about that Jesus appeared not just to the disciples, but to his own brothers. That will do it. That will get the job done. And so here we have right now, they don't have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. They're, playing, they're living this out in real time. We have the perspective that we already know what happens, but they don't. So uh, take a look here. Uh, Jesus is not going to go along with their plan. Verse six, therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here for you. Any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Now, this is very interesting uh, because Jesus already knows that he is coming into direct conflict with all of the systems, all the worldly systems, even the spiritual systems that are really rooted in worldly systems. They're really rooted in people's performance and ability to do things. And Jesus is coming and he's completely not going to conform to that. Matter of fact, he's completely outside of that. He is completely uh, opposed to the world because he is not from the world. He doesn't conform to that. We've seen this over and over again throughout our time in the gospel of John so far. He, he will not be put into a box. And so we've got that going on. And then look at uh, verses, uh, let's see, let's look at eight, eight to 10 here. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. Uh, Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for, a for the festival, he also went, not publicly, but in secret. Now, this is very fascinating because it seems like, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus just get done saying he wasn't going, then all of a sudden he was going? Like, what, what gives? Uh, and, and the reality is it has to do with the timing. He goes when God tells him to go, not when his brothers tell him to go, not why his brother brothers tell him to go, but he goes when the father sends him, which he's trying to explain to his brothers. I'm not operating on your particular time. My time has not yet come for you. Any time will work. So go because they are of the world and in the world. And Jesus is coming from outside of the world and is a threat to all of the world's systems of understanding. So he 
is not going to be bound by the wishes and the desires of other people. He's not going to seek the approval of the world to do it the world's way so that he can be exalted and recognized and be popular and all. That's not his motivation. His motivation is to do the will of the one who sent him. And so when it comes to timing, it, some of the translations actually say, Jesus said that it is not yet my time. Uh, some say it, some don't. But the point we're supposed to get out of it either way is that he was not going to go to that festival until God the Father sent him, which ultimately happens. He goes, but notice he doesn't go publicly because the, the way that these pilgrimages work is that you get all of these people, all these family groups, all these big groups together. And it's kind of a, the celebration starts on the way to get there. And Jesus didn't do it that way. Matter of fact, you can read in, in Luke chapter nine, which fills in some of this, this timing for us that to get to Jerusalem, he went through Samaria. We've talked about this before, too. Jewish people did not go through Samaria, at least not on purpose. Uh, and so for Jesus to go through Samaria and to do it kind of in, under the radar, so to speak, uh, is not drawing any attention to himself. It's, this is not a, 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 an effort of self-exaltation self here for, for Jesus. He, he is clearly about something else, which we're going to, uh, we're going to see. But he's going to do it in his time because God's timing reflects his will, not ours. Now, boy, does that frustrate us, doesn't it? Because we sure like to be the ones calling the shots. But God's timing reflects his will, not our will for him. But beyond just the timing, here's where it starts to get even more interesting. Beyond just the timing, again, Jesus is coming up against this spiritual system of understanding that is rooted in performing the law, doing the law. We're, we're going to get into to more of this in a minute, but, but just look at uh, uh, verse 11. Th they know he's a threat. They know that he's probably going to show up and they're looking for him. Verse 11, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for him and asking, where is he? And you can just imagine now the last time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, remember, he healed this man. Well, this is now a year later. They still remember the grievance. They still know what he did wrong and they're still looking. And matter of fact, it's probably worse because they've now heard from all these people who have either had direct encounters with Jesus. Remember, feeding of the 5,000, we had at least um, 15, 20,000 people there. Well, many of those were probably then in Jerusalem. So the word gets out and continues to get out about Jesus and all of these things that he's doing. And so this, this is all very threatening. So they're looking to see, well, where is, is he coming? Where is he? Uh, what is he going to be up to? Why is he here? And Jesus is there to call out this problem with appearance, because we can make all kinds of efforts to appear in whatever way we want to the outside world, right? That, that's what we're talking about here when it comes to what we post on Facebook and what motivates us to like or comment or share or, 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 or whatever. It's, maybe it's Instagram, Insta, the whole culture of Instagram influencers. It, this is insane, but we do it. And if somebody tells us something is good, well, pfft, we believe that person based on 
How many followers? How many endorsements? Uh, how, how much of the world? Our, our goal, it seems, in, in today's culture is often reduced to how quickly can I shoot to the top? How can I get, I mean, entire game shows are based on this principle, right? Between American Idol or The Voice or whatever, it, it's, it used to be in the music business that you really had a lot of talent and then, you know, the, the, you would be discovered and then developed and then, and now it's kind of like, well, anybody with a computer, uh, you know, it's fair game. And, and the game is how do I get to the top? How do, I, how do I get the most likes? How do I get the most amount of influence? Because we're seeking, again, the world's approval. We're getting it, or trying to, by constantly shifting and changing our outward appearance in order to do it. All right, look at verse 12. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Now that should tell us about how much power and influence the religious leaders actually had. Because people don't, they're divided. They don't necessarily know what to think of Jesus. They maybe are curious. Maybe some of them do believe, okay, well, I've, I've participated. I've seen the, the compassion. I've seen the good things that Jesus has done. I've received those things from him. And then there are other people who think, well, this is all just some kind of magic trick. It's just sleight of hand. He's not genuine. It's not authentic. Uh, he's just a deceiver. And so they're, they're divided, but they can't even have that discussion out in the open because they know that just by doing that associates them with the risk that is there from the religious system who is not going to deal well with Jesus coming in and, and breaking that thing apart and busting that, that open. So look at verses 14 and 15. It wasn't until halfway through the festival that Jesus went up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Well, in other words, Jesus didn't have the right resume. He didn't have the right credentials. He didn't fit in to the system. What's he doing teaching? Well, it's worse than that. It's not just what does he think he's doing teaching. It's what in the world is he doing teaching in this way? Because the typical way that it was done was that you would, you know, study under a, a very well-known rabbi who would then kind of take you under their wing and then bring you up in that system. And then you start to become uh, a recognized person. And, and Jesus didn't do any of this. He wasn't involved in any of this kind of system. And so all of a sudden he's, he's in the temple courts and he's teaching and the people are Amazed. Now, now, why are they amazed? Why? What amazes them? Uh, well, first of all, it's not because uh, Jesus is seeking the world's approval. It's not because he's there to gain more, you know, accolades for himself. Because remember, seeking the world's approval will cost you God's approval. And Jesus has been on him, on Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The seal of of God's approval has been placed on him and he has been given the authority to do what only God can do. Okay. Because he is God in the flesh, the word of God made flesh that came and lived and dwelt 
amongst us. And there he is. But just because he's in the world, that certainly doesn't mean he's of the world. And he challenges the systems of the world. And so here we see this actually playing out even in how he's teaching what he's teaching. Uh, verse 16, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. In other words, yeah, I don't have your resume. I don't need your resume and I don't want your approval. He's speaking from a position of authority that this is not the way this works. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So again, He's not speaking to them in the way that they are used to. He's not fitting into the system and the tradition. Typically, when there was teaching done, the rabbi would start going on and quoting all of these other things that had been said by other rabbis who are known and well-respected so that they can finally get to the point where they say, and so here's what this means. But Jesus is not using any of that kind of phrasing. Jesus is saying things like, very truly, I tell you, or to tell you the truth. That's not the way that people spoke. That's not the way that people taught. And so they were amazed. And Jesus gets right to the heart of it and says that he's not there to teach them so that they will celebrate him. He's there so that he can lead people to the glory of the one who sent him. Now, that should be our goal as well. Whenever we preach or teach or talk to somebody about Jesus, it should never be for us to say, see how great I am. See how wonderful, how deep of a thinker I am. How all these wonderful conclusions I've come up with. Absolutely not. And Jesus is helping us understand that. The, the goal is to actually point people into relationship with God, not to elevate ourselves, just like he is not. He's not been trying to elevate himself all throughout this whole thing. But then, talk about confrontational, he goes for the jugular. I mean, I, there's just no really way else to say it. We've talked about how Moses is their hero, right? And now this whole festival has Moses overtones because Moses was the one who rescued the people. God sent Moses. And then Moses was the one who God worked through to deliver all this divine providence out in the wilderness. And so Moses is their hero. It all kind of revolves around Moses. And Jesus just blurts out, uh, has not Moses given you the law? Yet, no, yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? In other words, maybe if you've seen Star Wars, that kind of reminds me of that. These are not the droids you're looking for, <laughs> right? They're like, what do you mean we're trying to? Well, Jesus already knows what their intention is. We already heard about all the way back in chapter five. They started plotting for a way to kill him. They still want to kill him. If anything, it's worse now than it was before. And it, we will see this continue to get worse throughout the next few chapters, but here Jesus is confronting them directly about their hero, Moses. Now, when it comes to Moses, 
we most often immediately think of the law of God, the law. You know, you, maybe you watch the old Charlton Heston movies, you know, the, 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 ten, the ten Commandments, and, you know, you get the stone tablets and the whole thing. And even though we weren't given the laws, maybe some of you have a Jewish uh, background, uh, but our ancestors, uh, if we are not Jewish, we were not given the law. But in the same way, God says, I will write the law on their hearts. So we, we know, we know in and of ourselves the, the, the right and the wrong. Uh, there is a moral authority and it is God alone. And, and, and he has given us that law on our hearts. But when we start to take that then and turn it into a performance system to judge and grade ourselves, not just to see how well we're doing, We'll talk about how we get into that in just a minute, but even more, especially so that we can point our fingers at other people and say things like, well, I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not like that person, right? And so this idea of performance, this idea of earning approval through the outward appearance of keeping the law, that's what's all at play here. And so Jesus is calling it out by saying, hey, you were given the law of Moses, and yet you don't follow the law. Now, that is wildly offensive. And yet, for you and I, if I can put that into a modern example, what do we do? Well, we cherry pick the things that we like, we disregard the things that we don't like, and we create a version of what we think God's law is and what God's rules are. And, and, and then we try to live up to those things. But notice that we, we've negotiated the terms to our favor. This is always the way it works, because if Paul says to us, all have fallen short of the glory of God, no one is perfect. We think, OK, well, if we can just modify the terms of what is being actually evaluated, then maybe we can we can sneak in there good enough. Maybe we can make it good enough. Like I'll give you a Ten Commandments example. All right. So if you lay down at night and you say, well, you know, doing great I didn't kill anybody today. That's good. Uh, well, I, you know, I didn't steal anything. Also good. Didn't have an affair. Wonderful. But what about when we get to the end, when it says, don't covet whatever it is, whatever things or even people don't covet what somebody else has. How well do we do in that? Not so good. Okay, especially in a culture that continues to put things in front of us and helps us create more and more demand for the things that we don't have. Again, spinning round and round we go. And so we create a version that we think we can live up to. And, and this is no good because keeping up our appearances keeps us from trusting Jesus. It was true for them and it's true for us. Keeping up our appearances keeps us from trusting Jesus because we start trusting in our own ability to do it. We, we trust in our own ability to get things done. We trust in our own ability to gain the approval of other people. And th th this is what it all comes down to when we're talking about the law and what its true intention is. Jesus is helping them to see this. Now, they don't want to hear it and Honestly, neither do we. But Jesus is helping them see the deeper piece of that. And he does this in verse 21. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. 
Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So again, we see this phenomenon of trying to create the right outward appearance so that we can earn approval. And Jesus is saying no to all of this. Jesus is saying that that's not actually ever going to work. But he's helping them see something about the law that, that, that they missed, uh, and we often miss too, which is that, okay, it's not just about the law or keeping the law itself. It's about what is behind that. Now, I've thought of an example here, and I'm going to ask you to go on a little trip with me. Imagine we get in the car, and we're going in the car, and we get on, you know, let's say any typical uh, road that, that we may be driving on, and uh, what is the most common speed limit that we will see? There's a sign up here to help you. Good. 55. All right, we see this a lot of times. I know it's faster on the interstates, but generally speaking, 55, very common thing. Now, when we think in terms of the law, if we, if we understand this, then we see the sign says speed limit 55. What happens when we look down at the speedometer and it says we're going 65? Well, right then in that moment, that speed limit sign becomes a mirror, doesn't it? It shows us how we are failing at the law. It shows us that, hey, the law is 55. You're not doing 55. You're doing 65. Therefore, you have broken and are breaking the law. It shines that in our face. But here's what the law can't do. The law can't make you go 55 miles an hour. The law can't actually deliver on what it demands. Right? It, and so there's a difference between knowing the law and doing the law. But when it comes to even understand, understanding what the purpose of the law is, there are two main purposes. God gave his law, number one, because God is clearly for life. God wants life. He wants abundant life. And so he gave the law to help us understand how to live with one another. You know, these are all good things. When, when we understand what is God's real intention, it's so that we understand how to create an environment for life to thrive so that we can live life to the full. But then the second part of that is that it acts as a mirror. It shows us where we've fallen short. It shows us that we can't ever measure up. But here's the interesting thing. Remember, we're driving in the car, we're going... Well, let's say maybe we slowed down now. We're, now we're, we're going 55 miles an hour. Fine. What happens when we look in the rearview mirror and we see and hear sirens, flashing lights? Well, if it's an ambulance, let's say, it almost always is going faster than 55 miles an hour, right? It's going faster than 55 miles an hour because it's trying to get to wherever it is so that life can be preserved. And so would you say if the ambulance is going on an emergency call and driving faster than 55 miles an hour, is the law broken?
Well, if the heart of the law is to preserve life, then no. That's what Jesus is saying, even about this whole example he's using with circumcision. He's saying, hey, you are circumcising a child on the Sabbath to comply with the law. But I healed somebody's entire body. And yet you want to kill me for it. And so when it comes to our understanding of outward appearance and approval and how, how we think we're going about earning that, I just encourage us today to recognize that what Jesus is telling us is that will never actually work. If you want to know whether or not you're approved, you don't look to yourself. You don't measure your performance. You don't come up with a plan or a scheme to try to make yourself look good. What you do is you turn to the one who has already been given God's seal of approval. And he extends that to us. That is amazing. We have not done anything to earn that or to deserve that. And yet, do we rest in that? Do we trust that? Do we, do we believe that? Do we live our lives that actually show the appearance of Jesus living in us and working through us? Or are we too busy trying to create an appearance to make us look good and to comply with our understanding of how the world works so that we might earn its approval? That's a very devastating thing because I promise you, in your life, there are ways right now that you are seeking approval from either people or things that are then putting an obstacle between you and this Jesus, this one who is already approved, this beloved one of God, who is desperately saying, set aside all of this other stuff. Stop with all of these other distractions. Quit trying to earn the world's approval. You've already been given God's approval when we trust and we believe in Jesus. And so I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know what you're struggling with. But today, would you pray and would you, would you ask God to reveal to you any ways that you might be seeking worldly approval instead of resting in God's approval? Would you go forth from this place and would you look at life differently, maybe with, with his eyes, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal his will for your life and then follow in that will as we go out and we continue to preach this good news, not for our glory, but for the glory of God who is ultimately and always revealed in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you that you have not left us orphaned, but instead you have given us yourself, knowing that we could never earn it or deserve it, but you've given it to us anyway because of your grace, because of your mercy. We thank you, Lord, and we, we surrender our lives to you and ask that we not lean on our own understanding and our own interpretation, but instead, Lord, that we surrender to your word, your way. We believe you, we trust you, and we know, Lord, that you alone have the power and the authority to raise the dead. We ask that you do that now in each of our lives, that you, you raise us from our dead life of sin in the ways that we've fallen short and give us the new life 
that we can only find and only have in you, in Jesus, in whose name we pray.